got a machine there if you want to do that. So that is available if you would like to do that. Thank you, Simon. That's wonderful. Um, okay. I want to think about the Christmas story a little bit this morning, um, but from a perspective of trust and, and explore the Christmas story in terms of what we can learn about trust. I think most of us are familiar with some aspects of the story, but that can also have some really dangerous implications because we start to see what we think is there rather than what's actually there. And now as I was pondering out this week, I came to see that one way to look at the Christmas story is to see the Christmas narrative is about two young people, Mary and Joseph, who find themselves in the middle of a situation they neither asked for nor expected. And they are learning to trust God in the middle of it. And that's why the Bible's still so powerful to me, because it continually uses people a long time ago to speak to me now. It uses different language and culture, but nevertheless, it speaks to my soul in my language and my culture, because I sometimes find myself in situations that I neither asked for nor expected. And yet, there is some lessons of how this young couple managed to navigate life that I think are hugely helpful. Yes, where are you? Are you there, Leon? It is me when I was younger. That is a picture of me, Leon, from my graduation. And I stupidly dyed my hair five days before that, which turned a lovely orange color. So my mum and my girlfriend, uh, anyway, Ange at the time, I don't know what, what we were, girlfriend, I think. No, anyways, whatever we were, uh, they were not happy to say the least. But yes, it is, Leon. It's lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for ages, Leon, by the way. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you. So this morning, I want to explore what it, might, what it might mean to trust God in the middle of a situation you neither asked for nor wanted. What encouragement can we get from these two teenagers? And Mary was probably about 14, and Joseph probably about 16, 17. What encouragement can we get from these Two people whose lives are turned upside down by God without any invitation, it seems, on their part. But before we get to that bit, I want to talk about this. About 31 years after he was in something like this, he said these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. And I find that world troubled very interesting because it means this, agitated, to cause inward commotion, to take away calmness of mind to be restless, to render anxious or distressed, to perplex the mind. And I don't know about you, but I find there's a lot of people in the world who are exactly that. They are anxious, they are perplexed, they are worried, they are restless, they are distressed. And Jesus said, no, there is a place you can be where that actually doesn't have to happen. And the result where that doesn't have to happen is by trusting in him, whatever that might mean or look like. But no matter who you are and no matter your situation, I'm sure that you have something to be troubled about this morning. Something that keeps you awake at night. Something that causes your mind to be restless. Something that means there's something turning over and over and over in your mind. This morning I want to think about all that Mary and Joseph had to think about. What kept them awake at night? And maybe ask the question, if they could trust God in the middle of all their mess, perhaps we can too. But before I think about trusting God, I want to point out how God trusts them. Because, let me start at the beginning of the story in Luke chapter 1. 
This is an incident where an angel appears to Mary and says this, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and the reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So this angel comes and goes, hey, you're going to have a baby. Um, but before we get into all the what's that all about, the whole other point is, okay, the incredible thing about Jesus is Jesus was not a baby, but he became a baby. Because before he was ever a baby, we read this in John chapter 1, in the beginning, and the word is another name for Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus is this incredible person that created the entire universe, and yet it says he's going to become a tiny baby. But of course, it's more than that, because before you're a baby, you're an embryo, and before you're an embryo, you're a blastocyst, and before you're a blastocyst, you're a marula. And a marula is very, very, very small. A marula is that moment of conception. When two become one, you, you get this marula, which is smaller than a grain of salt. You started as something smaller than a grain of salt. It's an incredible thing, really, isn't it, to think that at one point in time you were smaller than a grain of salt. If only some of us could back to be smaller than a grain of salt. Maybe. But anyways... But for me, Christmas is about the creator of the universe being reduced down to a marula, a small collection of cells smaller than a grain of salt. For God, Christmas is about giving up that which is most precious to him and risking the care of that most precious person into two teenagers who probably hardly knew each other, which is an incredible thing to think about because knowing Luke and Brooke, I don't think they just let anybody look after Evelyn. I'm pretty certain they don't let any old person just walk into the house and babysit. I'm pretty certain they want to know who those people are and they check them out and they want to know they're going to care because Evelyn's precious. And when something's precious, you want to look after it well. But it seems this God has got something very precious. And it seems he's more than happy to entrust his son in the form of an embryo to two teenagers. Can you see the incredible trust God places in these two people? And they're just human beings like you and me, okay? They were, not, they were just human people. They had their own questions. They had their own thoughts. They didn't ask for this deal. They didn't sign up for being Jesus' earthly mom and dad. But for some reason, they were chosen. I mean, can you imagine giving your most precious thing in the world to a couple of teenagers? I mean, I know life's moved on, and teenagers in kind of 4 BC were a little bit different to two teenagers now, but... That's what God does. And what's fascinating to me is if you read the whole story, he doesn't give them a lot of detail. So there's some supernatural intervention and angels turn up every now and again, but there's very little detail. They end up going to Bethlehem, but it seems God has not sorted anywhere out for them to stay, and he sorted nobody out to look after them. This is God's own son. And yet, there's no place in the maternity unit, and they end up in a stable with no midwife and no family members around. What is God doing looking after his own son? Then after the wise men visit, they get told to go to Egypt. So they flee 40 miles to the border, end up as refugees in a foreign country. 
Where do they stay? What do they do for money? What do they do for jobs? This job doesn't appear to be doing a very good job of looking after his only precious son. Or is he? Because perhaps, perhaps God is doing a great job because perhaps God doesn't want to fill in all the details because perhaps this God actually trusts Mary and Joseph to sort it all out. Perhaps he's very cool with wherever they end up living and however they generate income and whoever they end up making friends with and trust him just because perhaps this God actually trusts them. What if the details are all very light precisely because he wants it that way, because he wants them to take some decisions? Perhaps it even gives him joy as he watches it all unfold because deep in his being, he trusts them. And perhaps this isn't just for Mary and Joseph. Perhaps it's true for all of humanity. Perhaps he trusts you more than you trust you. And perhaps if you've been asking him some questions and complaining he hasn't filled in all the details, you could take heart from the fact that maybe he trusts you to fill in the details. Because that's clearly what I did with Mary and Joseph. And they're carrying his own son. Could you imagine if Mary got caught up in the whole, I need to do the will of God thing? Oh, where am I going to stay? What does God want? What does God want his son dressed in this morning? I mean, can you imagine getting caught up in all that nonsense? Huh? We're going to go to Egypt. Go on, go to Egypt. That's all they got told. Who's in Egypt? They have no idea. But perhaps he trusts them. And perhaps he trusts you. And perhaps most of the time there is no right. There's just a moment to make a decision and trust him, knowing that he trusts you. You see, the God I serve is not waiting to punish me when I get it wrong, because the punishment's already been dealt with. The whole point of the cosmic Christ being reduced down to our ruler, taken on a human form and being crucified and resurrected, was that there is no punishment for getting it wrong, because he already dealt with it all. It's already been dealt with and love is already flowing and will continue to flow no matter what because that is who he is. So for Mary and Joseph, when they're working out, how the heck do we do this in Egypt with a two-year-old exiled in a foreign land? Maybe he's going, well, this is going to be fun. I can't wait to see what they're going to do because his heart is to bless them. His heart is to make it right. His heart is to do good for them. He's not waiting for them to get it wrong so he can slap them around. He's excited to see just how well they are going to do. Because he trusts them. Okay. The Christmas narrative is about two young people who find themselves in the middle of a situation they neither asked for nor expected, learning to trust God in the midst of it all. And as I thought about it, I thought there were four things that they had to learn to trust God in. First of all, they trust God in all the confusion. I mean, have you read the actual story? It is well confusing for them. You see, you know the end of the story. You know what happens. They're in it at that moment, and they don't know very much about it. So they've both received visits from angels and get told it's all okay. You're pregnant. You're not married. Big deal, by the way, in 4 BC. Big, big, big deal. I mean, like stone to death deal in 4 BC. And by the way, you're going to make a 90-mile journey to Bethlehem from Nazareth 
together. And then when you get to Bethlehem, there's nothing organized for your stay. You're going to have to give birth on your own in a stable. So hey, Joseph, I know you're not married yet, but you're going to be the midwife. Now, come on, this is the story. There's no family there. There's no mom. There's no aunt. There's no... Like, Joseph, you're going to have to deliver this baby. Okay. It's an interesting introduction to intimacy. Then God decides it'd be a great idea if some local shepherds could turn up, presumably no relation to Mary or Joseph, and join in with the festivities. I mean, I know most people have a list of who is and he's not allowed to turn up when they've had a baby. Mary didn't get that list. You know, they're not coming, they're not coming. You can come in, but you're going to stand at this end, not that end. Like, the shepherds just turned up, man. And they were used to giving sheep all the time. They were used to birth. They probably didn't think it was an issue. Now, this is reality, though. This is the reality of the story. I guess at some stage, they moved out of the stable, found somewhere to live, cause, and then a bunch of guys on camels turn up at the door and give them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they managed to find a house. They've settled down. Jesus is maybe about two by this time. And then, so these guys visit, and then they get told, oh, now you're leaving home again, and you're going to be refugees in Egypt because some crazy tyrant king wants to kill every two-year-old. How do you process that? No psychologist, no counseling, none of that stuff. Just, hey, crack on, get to Egypt now. Makes no sense. And by this stage, Mary's still only 16. Imagine being sat in the stable after giving birth and a lot of shepherds wondering, saying hello. It's utter chaos and confusion. And yet in all the confusion and all the doubt, it seems they do all they can to trust that God might know what he's doing. Not only do they trust him in the confusion, they trust him in the rejection. 2,000 years ago, Nazareth was a relatively small village with a population about 400, according to some sources. In other words, everybody knew everybody in Nazareth. So when young Mary, who it seems was a lovely little girl, suddenly finds out she's pregnant, but hey, not done what you do to get pregnant, there's a bit of an outpouring of all sorts of things that are not nice. Rumor and gossip of Mary having committed adultery probably spread like wildflower. Wildflower? Wildfire. <laughs> and her explanation of divine conception no doubt made her the butt of many jokes. I mean, can you imagine when she went home to her mum? Mum, I'm pregnant, but I honestly didn't do anything. No, no, honestly, I had met an angel and he told me I was going to be pregnant. Oh, yeah, right, love. Now think about it. You know the story, so you think it's all normal. It's not normal. It's completely bonkers. It's utterly ridiculous. And remember that back, back in Jewish society, the punishment for adultery was stoned to death. And if Joseph had chosen to turn against her, a painful death by stoning would have been a fate, but instead he chooses to claim the baby as his own, which means he burns all the brunt of judgment, gossip, and mockery. They both give up any reputation they had. And isn't it strange when they get to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown where presumably his extended family was, because that's why he went there in the first place, because that's where he was from. There's nowhere for him. Why would you go back to where your family's from and there'd be nowhere to live? 
probably because you'd been shunned by all that fam. No one welcomes them in Nazareth and no one welcomes them in Bethlehem. So she gives birth with no family around her, no mum, no sisters around, no family friends to show her how to make sure Jesus is feeding properly or to change him. None of that. It's rejection. And it seems they do all they can to trust what he's doing. They also trust God in all the loss and grief. Think of what they've lost to get to this point. Reputation, friendships, family connections, a sense of place and home, a business, because they've moved, they've lost so much. And it really blessed me that Brooke and Luke talked about Eden and Nova as well as Evelyn, because their journey has been one of joy, as well as loss of death, and life as Brooke shared, of beauty and ashes coexisting. And of course, Christmas is a time when we're often reminded of loss. We're reminded of what is not here that used to be here. We're reminded of who is not here that used to be here. We're reminded of those who have gone to be with Jesus and those who don't have the same depth of relationship we used to have. For many, Christmas is much less a time of joy and much more a time to remember what's been lost. It was like this at the first Christmas. Can you imagine? Just the two of them sat there. Mary, she may never have been to Bethlehem in her entire life, and now she's there holding a baby with nobody around her but Joseph. Can you imagine the sense of loss and grief? What will life hold? What will life look like? There was grief and loss all around, and it seems they do all they can to trust that God knows what he's doing. Finally, they trust God in all the scary possibilities. Because after the wise men and be to see Jesus, more than likely a couple of years afterwards, Joseph has a dream, and in it, this angel comes and says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So they go up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. So the ruling, uh, Herod rather, is out to kill every two-year-old boy. So they get up literally in the middle of the night and flee 40 miles across the border as refugees with the actual reality that their baby could be killed, which was nothing for that time and that era. It wouldn't have been an issue to just kill people. They kill people all the time very easily and very quickly. So after they've gone all that they've gone through, they now have to process the terrifying threat that their baby might be killed. It's an incredible thing to process. Can you imagine the walk to the border? Can you imagine the 40-mile journey? knowing that there might be soldiers on your back hunting for your child to kill it. This is what Mary and Joseph do. For Mary and Joseph, there are some very scary possibilities, and it seems they do all they can to trust God knows what he is doing. Here's where I want to finish. Mary and Joseph were ordinary human beings like you and I. They were people who went through an incredible journey and went through it with lots of challenges and disadvantages. They had to learn to trust God in confusion, in rejection, through grief and loss. And as they face up to possibilities, they perhaps never thought they would ever face. But in it all, they kept on trusting. And God kept on trusting them, just as he had always done. Christmas narrative is about two young people who find themselves in the middle of a situation they neither asked for nor expected learning to trust God in the midst of it all. And God hasn't changed. He's still trustworthy. And my invitation to you this Christmas time is to trust. Either to keep on trusting or to dare to trust for the first time. 
that despite the confusion, despite the rejection, despite the loss and the grief and the scary possibilities, God can still be trusted to be God and to bring about everything that glorifies Jesus. Because today in whatever situations we find ourselves, that we have neither asked for nor expected, the same Father God that kept Mary and Joseph will keep you and he will keep me. Our challenge, just like theirs, is to keep trusting, despite the confusion, despite the rejection, despite the loss and grief and scary possibilities, because he is still God and he still does miracles and he still performs wonders and he still pulls people through, just like he did back then. Amen. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, I want to thank you that stories in this book can resonate so clearly with our lives today, despite the huge gap in time and culture and all that, Lord. And yet this book has stories that speak so close to our hearts. And Father, I ask, Lord, that for those of us who are confused about what's going on, those of us who are feeling a deep sense of rejection in different ways, those of us who are battling through loss and grief, and those of us who are seeing scary possibilities on the horizon. Father, I am asking that we would learn to trust you more and more, that we would learn that you are always there, and that we would take heart that you trust us to trust you, that your belief in us goes beyond anything that we would believe in ourselves, and that your love for us goes beyond any love we might have for anybody else or ourselves. But Father, we thank you that just 2,000 years ago, you were a God who could be trusted to take care of that was precious to you. So today, we are deeply precious to you, and you will still make sure that we are taken care of. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.